Our scripture today is Isaiah 53, 1 through 9. Who has believed that he has heard from us? And to whom he has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Stonehouse Church. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are glad to have you. Um, we are in a, a unique situation. It's funny, I was just talking to Canaan a second ago, and I expressed a thought that I had this week, and that was, you know, we just finished talking about the exile in Israel, and now here we are, exiled from our home, so to say. Um, if you're new with us, uh, we want you to know how much we loved Jesus. We love Jesus. Um, he is everything to us. The hope that we have is found not in ourselves, in our strength, in our church, uh, in anything other than the fact that Christ has loved us uh, beyond our own worthiness of his love. And uh, we celebrate that constantly, consistently. We want to elevate Jesus in everything we do. And if you're a skeptic or a doubter of Jesus, then uh, we're really glad you're here because we want to touch on those things. We want to wrestle through them. We understand um, why they might be a part of your life. Um, many of us come from that situation of doubt and skepticism, or maybe we're there right now and we continue to want to look at Jesus and what he claims and how that matters uh, in the midst of our lives and struggles and doubts. Um, and if you're a follower of Christ, we're really glad that you're here as well. We want to welcome you to press into the gospel together with us. Um, we're discovering so much about who he's making us to be as a people, and uh, this is a really wonderful time to, uh, to be pressing into the truth of Scripture as uh, it seems like maybe the world is shaking around us. Uh, we know that the truth is that God is in control of all things, that he is firm in his love for us and in his knowledge of all events, and so... We can trust um, that wherever we're at and whatever's going on, that he is leading that out uh, and that there's good in it for us. Um, and sometimes in the midst of confusion and, and strife and darkness, it can be hard to, to believe that, that there's good in it for us, but there is. 
because God is making us more like Jesus through all of our life and tests and trials. And so uh, we want to press into that truth and see what he has for us. Um, real quick repeat announcement uh, that Canaan shared a minute ago. Uh, we've got a potluck at the beach tonight with baptisms, um, 8,000 West Gulfport Boulevard, 6 o'clock. Um, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. I think we got quite a few folks on there already, but um, we could use some more. Is that correct, Aaron, Monica? Um, we could use some more, some more food. Um, so uh, feel free to check that sign-up sheet. It's on the table with the black tablecloth there in the back. There's also some of these, so you can grab it and have the address and a really cool um, picture there to help us remember how beautiful and bright this is going to be. Um, so uh, yeah, sign up, bring some food. Did you guys want to powwow with some folks back there after service still? Yeah? Okay, cool. So if you did sign up on that sheet or if you're interested in signing up on that sheet, uh, go powwow with, uh, with Monica and Aaron in the back there a little bit after service kind of ends um, just to hopefully we don't end up with all hot dogs. You know what I mean? Um, that's that's kind of the point <laughs> of that. We want some diversity out there at the beach tonight. So good time. Uh, I don't know. The weather looks good. So uh, we'll have a blast out there. Um, I also want to mention this. So a couple weeks ago, we got the boot from the place that we were meeting down on Central. Um, there's a whole story there. If you're really interested in it, I'd love to tell you. We're not like hiding about it. It was just a, a situation where the property management uh, kind of wasn't comfortable with how things were going. Uh, those property managers weren't the ones when when we began that, and so because of the change, uh, it led us to a place where because of the people that we were using, or the space that belonged to the people of this church, uh, they had businesses that their lives are dependent on to live in that place. They didn't want to have a situation that was at odds with anybody in management, and so uh, we just simply bowed out. We said, it's not worth risking your business. Um, we, can, we can handle not, not meeting here anymore. Uh, we don't want to cause problems. And so, uh, thankfully, we've met here before at the PAL. The PAL knows us. The people here know us. Um, they've been gracious to us, and so they had three weeks available to us right away. That's why we've been here for three weeks. Um, but when we first came to them, they told us they did not have Easter Sunday available uh, or Sunday, April 8th available, that those two were already reserved. And this is really beautiful. We talked about like wanting to be a people who, uh, when the world looks at us, they, they see us as, as gracious and friendly and compassionate and, 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 and are for us and not against us in our city. We talked about that in this last series that we did, and that's one of our hopes. And this, the people here at the PAL loved us so much that they called the other people who had already had the reservations for Easter and for the 8th to see if they could change their plans so that we could come back here. That's how much they were for us and wanted to argue for us to be here. Uh, those people didn't change their plans, which is totally fine. Um, I probably wouldn't have. Uh, and so we needed to find a home for Easter and for the 8th of April. So the good news is on Thursday night, Jason and I looked at a space. Friday night, we looked at a space. We've been scrambling, trying all sorts of things. A couple different churches have said, hey, if everything falls apart, you can meet in somewhere, you know, an off time at our church or in a fellowship hall or something. So we've had some really gracious responses to our moments of crisis here. Um, but we, we checked out this warehouse where a ministry meets and serves a meal on Saturday nights. Uh, but they do not do anything on Sunday morning, and they're going to allow us to use their space on Sunday morning for Easter. So that's fabulous, all right? The address is actually on Burlington Avenue, so I don't want to give you that address because it'll confuse you. It's a big brick warehouse, and we'll put that tent that's out front this building, we'll put that tent out in front of the, of the, the, the warehouse at the entrance. It's on 2nd Avenue North between 14th and 13th Street. 13th and 14th Street, okay? 
If you're kind of familiar with driving along 16th, there's a new self-storage place that just went up, like 17 stories worth of self-storage because that's how much stuff we have in St. Pete. So, kidding, it's four. But right behind that self-storage place is the red warehouse that I'm speaking of. It's a red brick warehouse. Uh, The new St. Pete Police Station is being built between 1st and 2nd um, Avenue North. It's just north of that this brick warehouse, all right? So it's going to be unique. It's a one-room place, so we can't put the kids in another room, so we're going to have kind of a family day. Uh, But hey, let's have fun. We'll make it Easter, and we'll make it great, and we'll give the kids the coloring book and um, just bear with it, right? Um, So come, celebrate. We'll we'll drink coffee and eat snacks again together. We'll celebrate through worship, and we'll open God's Word, and uh, it will be Easter. Amen. So we'll put up more of those details, website, social media, and all that stuff, but Red Brick Warehouse on 2nd Avenue North between 13th and 14th Street one time. Well, it might be two Sundays, but we know for sure it will be on Easter Sunday. So uh, a part of this whole announcement is continue to pray. We are continuing to dig and press and look um, and seek for space. Uh, We've been actually doing that for several months um, anyway. Um, before we got kicked out, and so uh, we just are trying to trust the Lord that he knows what he's doing, um, that he's uh, sent us on this adventure on purpose, um, that it will achieve the good that he has for us, Um, and if anything else, we'll just simply know that it doesn't take a building to make a church, but it takes a people who love each other and really want to know Christ through his word, Uh, and that's enough, you know, so if we got to go to a park, we'll do it, right? Been there, done that, amen? All right, cool. So we're doing a two-week series here because we just finished walking through um, the series called A People Planted, looking at Daniel and his friends in exile and and the children of Israel and what that kind of whole scenario meant for us. Um, And so before we uh, jump into Ephesians, which is what we're going to do in a few weeks, I wanted to take just a couple of weeks. It's Palm Sunday today. It's Easter Sunday next week. Um, and so we wanted to, to, to really focus on, on Christ's death and his resurrection in these two weeks. Um, and in seeking uh, scripture, uh, a way to kind of encapsulate the, the, the truth of Messiah and his death and resurrection for us, um, one of the best uh, messianic Old Testament prophecies is uh, in Isaiah 53. Uh, and that's what we're going to go through this week and next week. And so this week, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 9 in Isaiah 53. And then, or this week, yeah, verse 1 through 9. And next week, it'll be verses 10 um, 10 through 12. Um, And we need to do a little bit of history because this is really great. It ties in for us um, to what we were just experiencing, which is the exile that Israel was in, uh, in Babylon, and then in... um, Persia, which is where we kind of concluded last week with the changing of the kingdom. Um, So Isaiah, his book is amazing. If you've never studied through Isaiah, I highly encourage you to do it, Um, but do it with some tools, um, some some really needed tools, because it's a a very thick and complicated book, Um, but with the right tools, you can dig into that. I'm going to post some of those this week, uh, just as a helpful thing um, on some of our social media and stuff, but uh, the the servant songs in the second half of Isaiah, there's, there's four of them, um, and these servant songs are prophecies and they're kind of a, a pointing from God 
toward a work that he's going to do to bring about his salvation. What's really interesting about Isaiah is that Isaiah was written pre-exile. Okay? Isaiah was a prophet before the exile, and he wrote prophecies and warnings about exile. Okay? He said, hey guys, this is what will happen if you keep going in your rebellion against God. And then it happened. Exile took place. Um, and the second half of Isaiah is amazing because it is post-exile fulfillment stuff. So Isaiah begins to speak about God's salvation that will come when he restores Israel back to Jerusalem. Uh, he calls them to, to be comforted by his promises. And then he begins, Isaiah begins to kind of roll out this route, so to say, of salvation. And it's going to happen through what is called a servant. And early in the second half of Isaiah, it seems like the servant is Israel. It seems like God is saying, Israel, I'm going to purify you, and then you'll be my servant, and through you I will bring salvation to the world. This is one of Israel's greatest hopes forever. They've always thought we're the special people of God, and God's going to save the world through us, right? But what we find in the second half of Isaiah is that even though God has made all these promises and the, the, the warnings about exile come true and then the return to Jerusalem also comes true, we still find what? A stiff-necked, hard-hearted, rebellious Israel. And so these servant songs make a progression from seemingly talking about Israel as a servant to eventually, and we'll see this in, in, in Isaiah 53, very specifically talking about Israel a servant, a, a person, a man as the servant, a man who becomes Israel, who is, who is essentially called Israel. He basically, Jason talked about this a couple weeks ago, he basically represents the whole of Israel and does something that they could not do. And these prophecies speak of the Messiah that will come. So Isaiah wrote about exile, he wrote about the return from exile, and he himself lived and prophesied in the 720s B.C., and the return from exile was in like the 530s B.C., and we're in B.C., so that means when you move forward in time, you count down in numbers, right? So as, um, as these prophecies began to be fulfilled, they were moving closer and closer and closer um, toward the birth of Jesus. But still, when these words were penned that, were, that we read already, that we're about to read again, they were some six to seven hundred years before an angel came to Mary and said, you're going to be Jesus' mom. Right? Half a millennia or more, like pre-Jesus, these words were written. It's one of the most poignant messianic prophecies in all of the Old Testament, and we want to study it out and see how it shows us Jesus in such a glorious way. So let's read again, and just, just keep this in mind. The exile, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, a, a messed up king, Nebuchadnezzar, a, a, a broken empire that becomes under the rule of the Medes and the Persians. All of this stuff is going on hundreds of years before Jesus, and these words... Are, are present to them. 
they're contemporary to that group of people. It's, it's a bit mind-blowing when we think of it. So here we go. Isaiah 53, 1 through 9. Lord, wash these words over our hearts. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled and grateful that you have... Uh, lowered yourself to the point of coming, taking on flesh, being a man, experiencing this broken and marred world that once was made to perfectly reflect your glory, but because of our sin has been broken and marred nearly beyond recognition. But you entered that without sin, you entered it without malice, you entered it with perfect righteousness and the pursuit of making amends, making uh, sacrifice and ransom for us. You did it so that you could suffer in our place and for our sins. And God, we thank you for the whole story of Scripture and the amazing picture that it paints and how we can walk through history and get a glimpse of what you've done that you've worked and you've prepared and you've uh, moved pieces in all of history and that you've made a people that were your own and that even those people rebelled, yet still you were compassionate and merciful in your plan to bring salvation to all people, to make it possible for all of the nations and all of the tribes and all of the tongue, tongues of the world to, to know you, God. You did the work to make that all possible. When we behold it from history, it's magnificent, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see that and ears to hear it, and that more than anything, we would just get a picture of Jesus today, that we would behold him once again, and that beholding him would do to our hearts what nothing else can do, that you would soften us, that you would humble us, and that you would lead us to a true worship of Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen. 
it almost sounds like Isaiah is talking backwards, does it not? The accuracy, the on-point nature of his description of this servant, it seems like he's next to Paul writing about what happened to Jesus. Yet this was penned hundreds and hundreds of years prior. God's work to build out the story of redemption is glorious to see. And so these words lead us to just this humbled perspective that says, man, if I were to have to save myself, I could not do it. Because look at what God had to do to bring me the salvation that I have needed. The grace that he's given me is overwhelming. And we begin with verses 1 and 2 and 3. And we look at kind of the, the picture of the servant. And Isaiah just, he, points this, he paints this unspectacular picture of the guy, right? And it's funny because all of Israel's history, right? When we look back at Israel's history, we think of these giants, right? When we think of all oh, the, the, the Hebrews 11 stories of David with the sling, whack the giant and cut his head off, you know, and Samson pushing down the pillars and, and, and killing the Philistines, you know, we, we think of these heroic acts with, you know, Moses and his staff at the Red Sea and blah, puts that thing down and, you know, the whole sea stands on edge and, but as Isaiah begins to describe the one who will save the world. He says, you know what? There wasn't anything that great about him. As far as his appearance goes, not that much to marvel at, really. If you were to just walk up to the guy on the street and see him amongst all the rest of the people, you wouldn't stand back in amazement and go, oh my, this must be history's greatest character. There's nothing about him that would make us do that, Isaiah says. He grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And it got me thinking about those moments when you move from the place of comfort and kind of recognition to a place of being the stranger or the alien, right? You, you might have experienced this when you went from being, you know, maybe somewhat popular at high school and then to college, and it's like complete stranger, right? Nobody knows me. I've got no reputation here. I've got no, no you know, credit to my name. I've, I've got complete blank slate. There's all of that comfortability, all of that kind of I'm known for, you know, <laughs> That's all gone, and we, we walk into that whole new environment, and there's just that, that unsettledness or that uncomfortability, you know? Or maybe it was that time when you were dating that person or when you first got married and you went to that family thing, right? Because when you're at your family thing, you're like, you're that one, right? Everyone knows, oh, yeah, well, he's that, and she does that, and, and we recognize that, and we can count on that. But then you go to the new family, and they're all kind of like, you know? The dudes really feel this, right, with, like, the dads and the uncles. It's like, yeah, show me something, son. You know, like, there's nothing spectacular about you anymore. There's nothing great that anyone would take notice of. You're just the dude that's coming in and taking the girl, and nobody wants that, and so they're kind of antagonistic toward it. David's laughing very hard over here. 
You know, like this, this, this place of just uncomfortability where you're just, you're out of place. And I think when we, when we think of Jesus, we often, we look at his life and we think, okay, Jesus was like a dude, you know, kind of like a middle dude, you know, maybe a lower to middle dude, you know, maybe some tough stuff, probably didn't have sandals all the time. You know, we know his mom and dad were kind of poor, but he was probably had an okay life, you know, played with his brothers, ran around the neighborhood, skinned his knees, you know what I mean? But it, it kind of got tough for him, like, when he went to trial and, like, you know, had to stand the test of the trial and the false accusations. I mean, that was, that must have been tough for Jesus. And, I mean, it's Passion Week, right? So we look at that and we're like, okay, the triumphal entry, that's kind of, you know, continuing what's gone on with Jesus. He's kind of had a middle life and now people are really happy about him. And then the Passion Week is like the bad week, right? Like all of the bad weeks wrapped up into one bad week. And we think that was the test for Jesus. That was the hardship for Jesus. And of course, obviously the cross was excruciating. The word comes from, the, the word excruciating is created because of the cross. That wasn't a word until the talking, the conversation about how painful the cross was invented the word excruciating. It was excruciating for Jesus. And we recognize that. That was hard. But what we often fail to grasp is that Jesus did like when you moved or you walked into that new family or you changed that position and left your realm of comfortability and popularity into this stranger world. Jesus did that on day one, right? The God of all of heaven and earth who enjoyed perfect fellowship and communion with the Father and the Son or the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoyed that perfectly with one another. The worship of angels All of creation pointing to him, saying, you are glorious, you are magnificent, what you have have made is amazing, right? This was the existence of the eternal Son of God from all time history past, and he walks into human flesh, moves into our neighborhood, takes up residence on planet Earth, in the midst of sin and sorrow and brokenness and dinginess and, and, and lack and all of these things, from the very moment Jesus entered into the world, he was suffering right away. The one who had no limit to knowledge suddenly had to learn how to walk. The one who... All of vocabulary and all of the languages that ever were invented could not describe his beauty. He had to learn how to say, Mommy, Daddy, I don't know the Greek word, sorry. Potter, yeah, I do. (laughs) This is the suffering of Jesus. It's not reserved for Passion Week. His whole life was uncomfortable. Jesus knew no sin, nor even temptation until he's flesh and blood and he faces temptation for the first time ever. He's led to a place in his thoughts and in his heart where something speaks to him about rebellion against his father and he's never felt that before. Never. All of Jesus' life from the beginning of it, was a life of suffering. Verse 3, he was despised. He was rejected. That speaks of the cross, but it speaks of his life. His family didn't want him to do what he was doing. He was disowned. 
by his own nation, his own people. He was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. He knew grief. Again, the Son of God from all eternity past, dwelling in perfect harmony with peace, with joy, suddenly knows grief, suddenly knows sorrow. He was not esteemed. He was not highly lifted up while he lived on this earth. And certainly he had his ministry and people responded to that truth as he spoke it. But as time went on, we see eventually many, 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 many in the crowds turn away from Jesus. Isaiah speaks hundreds of years ahead of time and says, this will be the servant. He won't do what he's going to do because he's physically some kind of spectacular human being. He will do what he's coming to do because he is God's own son sent to be the Savior of Israel and of the world. And in order to do what he was sent to do, he had to be this normal man. He had to be touchable. He had to be betrayable. He had to be killable. Because God surely cannot die. And so God and man met together in Christ, became what was needed, a sacrifice. We'll get to that more in a second. And so verses 4 and 5 point us to why this Jesus, this unremarkable, this servant, this non-noticeable guy had to come. Surely he has borne our griefs, Isaiah says, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. The language here for Isaiah turns to in our language. We, us, our. Right? We saw this in Daniel chapter 9 where the prophet made ownership of the sin of Israel as his sin. And he said... We, as a people, there was a collective nature to his plea to God. We see that very same thing here in Isaiah where he, where he knows the suffering servant had to come and the reason was because of us. That the whole point that Jesus came to do what he had to do, long prophesied before he ever did come, it was for us. The reason that Jesus was well acquainted with grief was because I too am acquainted with grief. And so he stepped in to be a mediator in my situation so that I would know I am not alone when I am in grief because Jesus too has been in grief. That's a tremendous comfort. Jesus was acquainted with grief because we humans, we bear grief too. He carried our sorrows. He did what we could not do. He endured all of these sufferings and he did not sin and he did not turn away from God and we know that in him we have a close, close representative who has stepped in and said, I can do and I will do what you are unable to do. I can actually carry your sorrows. And yet the point of it all is that 
We know that he did what God had done to do, uh, what God had sent him to do, and yet he was seemingly rejected by God. It seems as though nothing went the way it should have gone. If it weren't for these prophecies, we would think that about the life of Jesus. Like, oh, this can't be how salvation would happen, but because of the foretelling of the Old Testament and the knowledge that we know that he had to endure these sufferings, then we know clearly the plan of God was enacted perfectly in history through Christ. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Why is this true? Why is it that when someone comes for us that these things can be taken away from us? It's because of the love of God. Because we, verse 6, like sheep, have gone astray. We know Jesus came for us and he had to come for us because we were wandering. We had wandered away. We had known the good God who created us. He had made himself known through his word, through all creation that testifies to his goodness. And yet we turn each, Isaiah says, to our own way. The whole reason the hour need to happen in this situation is because of our wandering because we have turned to our own way. The Bible's word for this is sin, and we don't like that word in our time and culture. And not only do we not like it, but we often misunderstand it, right? We typically see sin as individual isolated events, right? A lie, right? A gossip. A gossip, right? Uh, a, A greedy moment, that selfish time, murder, obviously, adultery, obviously, we, right, stealing. We, we often interpret sin as these singular, isolated, bad events that occasionally we, we do. And the Bible's view of sin is, is drastically wider than isolated and individual events. It includes them, but it is wider. We typically think that We might sin once a day or once a week. You know, we can look back and remember, oh, that one and that one. Oh, that one was bad. I remember, right? And we kind of can even mark some of them. But sin, if we're really to, to define it as Scripture would define it, is that sin is any deed or thought or action or inaction or even state of being that is not 100% representative of the goodness, righteousness, wholeness, and holiness of God our Creator. I'm sorry we don't have a screen to put that on, but sin being any deed, thought, action, inaction, or state of being that is not 100% representative of the goodness, righteousness, wholeness, and holiness of God our Creator. You see, Scripture talks both of sin as a nature as a, as a disposition, as, a, as a, 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 a default setting of our human nature, and also as events, as moments, as singular rebellious deeds, wicked and evil deeds. It, it speaks of this broader situation where which we're all infected 
because of the decision of our first parents who said, God, your creation is great and good and, 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 and you're, 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 you're here and I see that, but to me, you're not enough. I'm going to follow my own way. I want to find my own path. I want to make my own rule. I'd rather be my own king. That rebellious decision we saw breaks all of creation and by the nature of that rebellion, there's infection everywhere. David said that when he was in his mother's womb, there was iniquity in him. That from the first moment of life, there was a bent towards brokenness. And so when we look at what Scripture says about sin, we see that it's inescapable. That if I'm born, there will be sin in my future. That's just the truth of being a human. And we'll see in Ephesians in a couple weeks that because of that sin, we're dead to God. We do not love him. We do not want him. We do not treasure his rule. We do not value his words. By nature, we do not worship and honor him. And this is the disposition of all of the days of our life. And also, we have willful sin, right? Sins of commission things we actually commit that we know we shouldn't commit, and we commit them anyway. Also, sins of omission. This one stinks, right? For everybody who thinks they're really good, it's like, no, you're not good enough. Sins of omission is if you know anything that was right and don't do it, then you're sinning. Oh, dang it, right? I mean, tough to get out of it. Commission and omission and then thought and deed and attitude. We're sinners just by what we think sometimes. We're sinners just by the attitude that we have sometimes. Right? You feel that rub in those friendships? You're just like, ooh, ah, I don't want to touch that right now. You're acting like that. You have that chip on your shoulder. You have that disposition right now. That's a, that's a revelation of the non-100% righteousness of God. If, that's a, if those types of sinful attitudes are, are disruptive in our relationships, imagine what they are in our relationship with God. There's no possible way we can come to God with this kind of brokenness. And so we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And the truth is, because of sin, because God is holy and perfect and just and righteous, He cannot endure sin. And so His disposition towards sin is to oppose it fiercely. That's why the Bible talks of the wrath of God, because sin is in opposition to His very nature, and He cannot endure with it. Something must happen to get rid of sin if we have any hope of God interacting with us. And the last part of verse 6 is an utter shock when you think of our responsibility and our sin and our darkness. The last part of verse 6 says, and the Lord has laid on him the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. That is unbelievable. That all of the action and inaction, all of the attitudes and all of the sin nature and all of the independent individual rebellious decisions that we make and just the brokenness and the bent towards rebellion that all of history has shown that this passage says that that is laid on Jesus, the righteous one, 
the sinless one, the son of God, the one who dwelled like we just spoke about in all eternity past in perfect righteousness and holiness and fellowship with God the Father and the Spirit. That Jesus endured all of the iniquity being laid on him. And when sin was laid on Jesus, the following is what happened. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a righteous man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. A banner verse for us again and again is 2 Corinthians 5.21, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the suffering servant who was not remarkable in any of his physical appearance, yet he was established by God to be the bearer of all sin. He is the one upon whom all our sin was thrust upon. First Peter 2 tells us that when Jesus faced these things, he didn't kick back. He didn't fight back. He didn't resist. He didn't say, no, I don't deserve this. Like Isaiah prophesied, he was silent before his shearers. The weight of the sin of the world was laid on the one who had never known sin before. The heaviness of that reality, the significance of all of that being laid on Jesus, I think is incomprehensible. Maybe we'll get a glimpse, but one day we'll see fully how both tragic and completely glorious that truth is. That at the cross, the meeting of the righteousness of God and the wrath of God is a collision of the cosmos. There's a reason that the world went dark and the earth shook and the temple quaked, and the curtain ripped, and dead people jumped out of their tombs, and Roman centurions went, oh my gosh! I mean, they had seen a lot, right? The spoils of war, the conquests of Rome, yet this moment was more awe-inspiring than anything seen before. I talked about how we're in the servant song here in Isaiah 53. And I kind of lied because it starts at 52 verse 13. Chapters were put in the Bible way later, by the way. So this servant song beginning in Isaiah 52. Sorry, did I say 53? 52 is where it begins. Verse 13 is where we're going to finish. It says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Isaiah speaks hundreds of years ahead of time of Jesus, speaking of this servant who will act wisely, who will not even be recognized, not only because he's not spectacular, but because he will be beaten in such a uh, severe fashion that he won't look like a human. Because of that work, because of that suffering, because of that pain, he will do what? He will shake the world. He will shake the world. And the end of verse 15 speaks of a people who have not heard and that they will begin to hear. Isaiah is writing to Israel, who at this point in time have seen themselves as God's chosen people, and he's beginning to help them to understand that there is a greater chosen people. Not only Israel, not only this nation but all nations, that all of the kinds of the people, like we talked about a few weeks ago, shall hear, and they will be able to listen because of the great work of God to give them ears to hear, that this deed, this act, this suffering, this cross, this servant is not only the servant of Israel, not only the servant of God, but the servant of all who would call on him to be saved. The glorious good news of the gospel is that all who have not heard can be told that by looking to Jesus, because of faith in Jesus, in what he became, in what he endured, in how he died and how he was risen again, no matter where you're from, no matter when you were born, no matter who your parents are, no matter how educated or how much money or what your residential situation is, no matter what, you can look on him and be saved. He's your servant. He's come for you. He's suffered. He's endured a strange life for you. All of the strange parts of your life, he understands because he knows grief and he knows sorrow and he knows being despised and he knows being lonely and he knows being rejected. And he's your friend and he's your savior and he's your king. Why? Because he willingly gave up his life. Because he said, I do not count myself more worthy than you. I lay the most worthy one. I lay myself down for you. All of my glory. Everything I have right to claim, I do not claim. I lay it down for you. Because you need my work on the cross and my resurrection in order to have life again. This is the glorious hope of the Passion Week and of Easter that Christ endured more than we could ever imagine, fully knowing why he had to do it, knowing what it would be, and yet he persevered and endured for our sake. And so may we see this long-expected Messiah as the one who came for us. May we know that he suffered in his coming for you. May we see that he took on the cross in your place for your sin. 
May we see the passion of Jesus move us towards a response of repentance and humility and gratitude. And I pray that Easter and the celebration of his resurrection would be an explosion of worship for us because we know that our king has conquered death once and for all. Let's pray. Jesus, we look forward to not just celebrating together next week, the resurrection, but we look forward to celebrating once and for all the, the doing away with all death and all sin and all sorrow, the erasing of all grief and pain, the redemption of all brokenness, the healing of all hurts. And we know because of Jesus, who was closely acquainted with these ills and evils, we know that it's possible because he's made a way through his body, through his brokenness, through his shedding of blood, through his surrendering to death. He has done a great redemption work, and we behold it now in wonder and amazement. And we thank you, God, that it is not up to us. <laughs> because Jesus said it is finished, we know that the work is complete, and we can trust him, and we can rest in his life and death. And so today, as we enter into Passion Week, may we consider the fullness of the sorrows that, were acquaint that Jesus was acquainted with, and may we know that he did it for us. May we know that he had to do it for us because we were hopeless and lost in our sin and death, but that he willingly and gladly did it for us because of the great love with which he has loved us. Oh, that we would know this love. Oh, that we would see this Savior. Oh, that we would savor his grace and celebrate him. We love you, God. Thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.